Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We're excited to bring you Marawi Garima, director, producer, and writer of his debut feature, Residue, streaming on Netflix right now. Marawi, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I, I just wanted to start really quickly by saying I saw your director's intro that you recorded. It's available on YouTube. You've shared it on your socials, and I just advise everyone, go watch it, listen to it. It's only a minute long, but if I could, I would just play that on repeat, and that could be our interview. I mean, it was so beautifully put, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it says everything I, I would like to say. Yeah, and we'll, we'll share that as well. But um, so, so this film is loosely based on your own life, growing up in D.C., leaving for film school, and then coming home to a neighborhood and, and friends that, that were sort of unrecognizable. And I wanted to talk about why you chose for this to be your first film and how it's helped you deal with what's really going on today. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if, it, if, if I even had a choice in the matter. You know, I was looking for a film that I wanted to do. Uh, first off, my, my, both of my parents are filmmakers. They're Black independent filmmakers in, I would say, the highest sense of the word, of the term, because they came in, you know, they came out of a generation, you know, that they called L.A. Rebellion, which is basically just Black filmmakers finding, looking for any way possible to tell Black stories with, you know, without, you know, with no strings attached, with nobody to answer to, you know, um, in the, you know, Hollywood's racist, you know, one of their most racist moments, you know, in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know what I mean? I think um, battling to bring these stories to light really crafted a, an incredible uh, generation of filmmakers that, you know, it's hard to come by. Charles Burnett comes out of that generation, you know, Larry Clark with his incredible film, Passing Through, um, um, Billy Woodbury, you know, uh, Bless Their Little Hearts, like all these, you know, incredible filmmakers, um, Julie Dash, you know what I mean? So, you know, I think that like, uh, quick note, all those films, you know, some of the best films or most well-known films that come out of the era are their thesis films because they were never really brought up, you know, lifted up to make more films. You know, they were never really enabled to continue, you know, or uh, supported to continue in that way. My parents have made many films because they do not stop, you no, know, for nothing. If we call my dad right now, he's probably editing literally two documentaries at once, you know. Wow. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of like this, you know, this, the soup that I come out of. And um, I think with that, it was important for me to do a film, you know, period. No matter what film school tells you, they encourage you to do short films rather than feature films. But my dad, when he graduated, you know, from UCLA, he had two feature films, you know, one that was showing at Khan and one that was showing on campus. And they didn't know what the hell happened or how he did it, but, you know, he did it, you know, and I think for me, it was just a personal challenge because I knew what was possible despite, you know, what we were told in film school and all these other things. And so, I, you know, when I opened my mouth, though, I found that the only things that I could really speak about at that moment were what happened to the friends who I grew up with, you know what I mean, what's happened to my city. Uh, that was the most pressing kind of things that, you know, I, you know, I would have been, uh, I would have been wasting your time if I tried to do something else, you know, in LA or some other city or whatever. 
Yeah, I, actually, I was, oh, sorry, Angie, you want to go? No, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, um, so, yeah, again, we needed like an hour to really talk about this film, but <laughs> when, when it first opened, you know, the, the opening shots, I was like, that could have been Oakland, quite frankly. Um, and, and it really, it, to me, it could be all of the cities that are going through this change right now and that we've been going through in the last five to 10 years could be longer, but, um, but I wanted to ask you too, the film is very self-reflective. Um, was it your original thought to be as self-searching as the film turned out, or was the end result part of the processing you went through to get it on screen? It, it wasn't. My, my initial, uh, you know, kind of uh, gut, you know, my initial instinct was to act like it wasn't about my life. You know what I mean? It was to try and write the characters, change the names, change the locations, and kind of separate it from me as best I could. And I think that's what a lot of artists do, you know, um, because I think that the opposite of that, you know, just being open and saying this is about me, um, it opens you up to a state of vulnerability that is just like, you know, that is, that is um, incredibly challenging to deal with, you know, because suddenly you can't hide from the fact that, you know, this character that kind of reflects you would do certain things, you know what I mean? Of course, it's it's not exactly you, but it comes out of your, you know, uh, it comes out of you. And so you have to account for their actions. You have to account for your perspective. You have to account for the fact, you know, you know, for example, in the film, we don't show white people, you know, like their faces, they're kind of pushed to the edges of the frame. Um, and uh, that's going to draw questions, you know what I mean? That's going to draw interest and, you know, it's going to, it's going to draw especially in America, you know, its own kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, I would say weighty, you know, uh, attention. And so I think that you had to be ready for all those things and you open yourself up to, to, the, you know, to this type of criticism or whatever, whatever may come. And so I don't know, at a certain point, I had to throw all those worries out of the window and had to just kind of be free because, you know, we look up, we're shooting in my neighborhood where I grew up, we're shooting my homies where I grew up with, their kids are in the film, you know, playing us, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, it got to the point where it's just like, the, it doesn't, you know, you can't hide if you wanted to, you know what I mean? Some interview will come up somewhere down the line for somebody from Q Street, like, nah, this is about him. You know what I mean? Like, I <laughs> there was no point even trying to hide anyway at that point. So, and, and once, I, once I got to that point, man, it freed us up to just be like, yeah, he's a filmmaker. He came from LA. He's making a film about his movie, about his, his neighborhood. And it was just the most like surreal meta, you know what I mean? Just kind of experience moving from that point onward. Where it was just like, yo, fuck it. You know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think we kind of forged new territory, at least for ourselves as artists and um, for the film itself, new potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that, that uh, on the topic of perspective, you used a lot of locals, as you said, the, the old man on the front porch, just going back and forth. Um, you, Delante, I, I think, was your college roommate, mm -hmm. you said. He's one of my favorite characters in the film. Your mother makes a cameo in one of the most emotional scenes of the film. Um, so I think not only that talks about the importance of, of us being able to tell our own stories in, in terms of authenticity and how it makes you feel, but also that people are starving for these stories. Yeah. Like, and it really impacts us in different ways. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, in the process of making it, 
I wouldn't open myself up to worry about which audience, you know, what the audience wants and, you know, kind of what they expect me to do, because I think that's too much pressure for any artist to try and live up to. And I, I think my process would have been completely, you know, hamstringed by that. But now that it's come out and kind of the reception that it's received, you know, specifically from people in D.C., you know, a place where no film, you know, very, very few films, there, there were one or two that I know of, very few films have been made about, you know, <laughs> black people in D.C., the majority population in that city. You know what I mean? Those stories largely have gone untold for, you know, our time in, the, in, in this country. Um, and, uh, and so I think that, like, the way people have taken to it, you know, so personally um, has just been incredible and just revealing of, you know, like you said, it's a hunger, you know what I mean? And that's interesting that you said it because that's kind of how my dad refers to this type of thing, Black people being hungry for stories, you know, unmitigated stories with no white filter in between, you know what I mean, uh, allowing mm -hmm. certain things through or certain things, you know, blocking certain things. And I think that that's a lesson that he learned, you know, making his film, with my mother, uh, Sankofa, in the 90s, you know, which, you know, destroyed all notions of Black commerciality, you know, the, the commerciality of Black films, because black, the only way it was able to be distributed once, you know, white distributors uh, rejected it, you know, across the country, despite it winning all over the world, uh, the only way it was able to be distributed was Black communities across the country literally putting their own money forward to rent the theater, you know, and bring the film there and hold it, you know, and, and, and have people and invite us, you know, my, my family to come, you know, and, and talk to Q and A's and stuff, but to, to bring it to their own city and show it to black people and black people would go and these films would be in those theaters for months. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, really just like destroying all notions of what, you know, what can make money. And I think that, uh, had it had even a little bit of what Ava is, you know, is doing now, is presenting now in terms of black distribution, man, it would have been, you know, f far bigger than it was. But, but you know, I think that, uh, so, you know, that's kind of what, you know, it showed that there is a hunger for black stories that no white producer or very few white producers have the imaginative, uh, you know, broadness to, you know, to really, to really see. You know what I mean? And certainly in a way that allows them to invest in it. You know what I mean? It's really just Ava and a couple other people. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you do me a favor and talk about the idea of decoys um, that LaVon, uh, the actress Melody, is it Melody Talley? Yeah, Melody uh, Talley. Brings up to her son, Jay, because that really stuck with me. And I, I've been thinking about it since I heard just the term talked about. Yeah, you know, uh, decoys is something that my mother you know, it, it's a conversation that she had, she felt she had to have with me because I was really, um, I was, I was in a bad place in 2016, around the time when I started writing the script before I started writing in earnest because I had been away and then I came back to the city and it had changed from just kind of, you know, my experience of it had changed from just seeing things change to literally just day by day, just running into entitled white folks who felt that it was their city and they could treat people however they want. And that's, that was the type of treatment I was just not used to. I'm used to police, you know, I'm used to just, you know, other, you know I mean, interactions, of course, black people have amongst each other when somebody's on bullshit, whatever. But this new, uh, this new presence, this new population who felt that, you know, they can tell you what to do because suddenly they, you know, they, they renting or bought a home in the area and they feel entitled to, you know, to uh, take up as much space as they want to. 
uh, I, I, I certainly was not accustomed to that. And I certainly wasn't about to just let that shit fly. So I was, I was getting caught up in situations. I was, I was uh, going down a, a path that my mother could see. And so she had to pull me to the side after one specific you know, moment to just be like, yo, what are you doing? You know, because, you know, this is she, she knew that's not me. That's not even in my character, naturally. And she's like, yo, like, you know, this, this, these things are happening. And, you know, we do have to fight. But at the same time, don't fall for the decoys because there are bigger, there are bigger battles that need to be fought, you know, uh, in, in order for you to attack the root, you know, in order for you to actually do something, it's critical that you don't fall for the, you know, kind of blind, you know, uh, you know, unknowing decoys just kind of living out their life in whatever kind of bubble they live in, you know what I mean? And uh, not knowing how they're being weaponized against black people, you know, in every city, you know, in the pursuit of whatever life that they, they feel that they're pursuing. Um, to not, you know, to not go out like that, you know, if you truly want to be effective. So that was a critical moment for me as well. And that's really when I just kind of reoriented myself and just kind of refocused my energy into the film. Yeah, it seems like you really, you really had a sense of urgency to create this film. You didn't have to start shooting it before the script was even finished. You, you shot it in two separate summers, which I can't even imagine continuity-wise how hard that was. And, and you talk about how you made the mistakes, you know, in quotations, those imperfections, a part of the film. And, and some of those things that you call mistakes are some of my favorite aspects of the film. Um, so it's just odd that you had the sense of urgency to create this film, not knowing what 2020 would be. And now here it is for us to to digest and to become part of a, co a bigger conversation that's happening right now and in a time when people are more willing to listen right right so thank you first of all and <laughs> and it, it's just kind of weird how serendipitous that is yeah because we need that we need a film like this right now yeah you know it's funny because yeah this you know things were popping off but the way you know the way not in any nowhere near what's been going on right now. You know, the magnitude of the, the current uprising that we find ourselves in, like, was unforeseeable, you know, when I started this project. And to a certain extent, I felt like, um, damn, I, I wish I got the film done sooner uh, because, you know, I, I would have liked, uh, you know, it would have been cool if there was like, yo, Residue kicked off the revolution. You know what I'm saying? Some mm -hmm. shit like that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, Looking, looking at it now, I, I, yeah, you're right. It's so, it's so well placed, you know. In my opinion, that if there are people who, you know, who are in, in, you know, on the front lines, who see value in it, you know, um, in you know whatever way they're battling the enemies that we all face. You know, I mean, this kind of monstrosity of white supremacy in America and the world. Um, it's just right there to be picked up by, you know, anybody, you know what I mean, to assist uh, in, in its own small way, you know. And, you know, I'm not one to tell people how to use, you know, whatever, but I, all I can say is that I did my best to form it into a weapon, you know, in, in that kind of way, to form it, and you know, in, in, in the tradition of my parents, you know, who, who see themselves as like fodder for the next generation. You know, I, I did my, we did our best to kind of create this thing, you know, and um, yeah, like I, my my hope is that it is taken up in that way, but of course, you know, uh, we'll see how it turns out, you know, but I think that 
you know, the uh, the stage is set, you know, for, for something interesting to pop off. Yeah. You know, just a quick thing, you know, nothing would bring me more joy, you know, honestly, than to see this thing kick off, you know, in Oakland and New York, in, in Brooklyn specifically, you know, San Fran. Uh, you know, uh, there was a film called Not My Neighborhood where they track, you know, they track, you know, hot spots of gentrification all over the world and just kind of draw them together, draw, you know, t- show how they're all connected. And yeah, like if this film kind of follows the path of, you know, black oppressed, you know, communities under siege of gentrification, you know, um, along with many other things, you know, I would be so happy. Yeah, I mean, this this film is right up there for me with Last Black Man in San Francisco. So um, it's, it's, yeah, real timely. Um, last question and, and kind of a lighter note. Uh, so were your parents in there editing with you? Did they have critiques along the way? <laughs> like, like, how does that, how does that go? <laughs> right. Well, you know, first I want to say, um, my dad, he's funny as hell. He, um, he is a, uh, he, he was a film professor for 40 years at Howard University. And so, um, he's good, I think, at separating you know, oh, you my son, or, or you just, you know, this is you being a filmmaker kind of thing. Um, and, you know, he's got his own way of being, but when we were filming, he really was just kind of on the sideline for the most part, you know. And he, so he stepped in once, before, he didn't really step in. He gave us like a little parting gift as we were going into shooting, you know, the night before we went to shoot. Uh, basically to say that like, you know, after, I don't know, a month, you know, a couple of weeks of pre-production, the cinematographer had landed, you know, three days before we started shooting. Mark Jeeva Rutnam, yo, he's a soldier because, like, he had no prep time, nothing. We, he went up to Jersey on the second day to go get the camera, came back. We had one day of scouting. It was crazy. <laughs> you know, we had just finished casting actors. We had to cast, like, over 30-something actors, maybe 40-something for the original script. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was insane. So my dad, of course, you know, noticing all these things, he was like, um... You know, first, you know, you want a production to be like a, a plane that's kind of, you know, leveled, you know what I mean? And your plane right now is just like this and you're taking off, you know what I mean? Really just off kilter and you really want to just level it up because right now it's it's looking bad. But he was like, you know, um, it's okay. You know what I mean? Uh, in fact, it would be somewhat of a curse if you had a lot of time, you know what I mean? If you had all the time in the world to go shoot, and basically, he was just like, allow the imperfections, you know what I mean? Like you said earlier, you know, that's, that comes out of him, you know, his thing, which we made our, our mantra, mm-hmm. to allow the imperfections. Because in his mind, he felt that those, you know, the urgency of our production, you know, despite all the things that were, you know, the catastrophes that were to, you know, befall us, he felt that the urgency of the production would find its way into the film. And I think that, like, not knowing what that meant in the moment, but trusting that like, you know, we could just go mess up, you know, and go be bad at making this film and get better over time. It was completely liberating to not have to, you know, worry about, you know, uh, uh, shit, we, we, we scheduled five, five scenes for today and we only got one because working with, you know, five kids, you know what I mean? From mm-hmm. the you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In their home, you know what I mean? Like in they in their own stomping grounds is impossible, you know what I mean? <laughs> Those types of things really, you know what I mean? It was like it's okay. We we'll punt the scenes, we'll get them later, we'll chop the scenes if we have to, but like, yo, if they could do it, you know what I mean, under worst conditions, we are all right, you know what I mean? We we good. So it was a it was a blessing to have him nearby, you know what I mean? But during the editing, 
um, yeah, you know, I, I would I would screen to different captive audiences, but like my parents, you know, were always open to watch a cut and like always open to like give me feedback. Um, you know, my mother gives really <laughs> tough feedback, my dad as well. <laughs> but you know, that's what you want, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Marawi, we're so glad you decided to follow in your parents' footsteps, and I'm glad you didn't pull a 180 and become a dentist or something. Right. Oh, I tried. We, I was trying. <laughs> quick, quick note, I was trying. I literally, uh, throughout, like, high school, college, people be like, oh, you're going to be a filmmaker? I'm like, hell no, nah. you know, I want to go be whatever. In college, I was, I came in general studies at FAMU. I did uh, biology. I was thinking about, you know, being a psychiatrist because my uncle was in my ear talking about get that money. Oh, mm. that's yeah, interesting. I, I, oh, I was in pre-med for one semester. <laughs> that's it. And then I changed to jazz studies. Oh, that's how oh. bad it was. That's how bad it was. Wow. So I you can't like, fight who you are. <laughs> right. Yeah, basically, by the time I graduated, I was like, you know, I had done jazz studies, 3D art. Graphic design is how I graduated. And at the end, I was like, I, I can't see myself doing that. Let me just give film a shot, you know? And that's kind of how it happened. Well, I, I know we're ending, but it's interesting you're talking about psychology because this film feels feels like um, therapy. So oh know. yeah, maybe, maybe it's stuck in there. Well, and I just, sorry, one quick thing. I just got back from LA. <laughs> I visited my childhood neighborhood and my childhood home. Half the houses are twice as big as they were. And I just, I didn't, you know, I didn't recognize it. So really, it really was personal and, and timely for me too. And I saw somebody that was living in my house and I was like, take care of my home. I yelled at him from across. Right, right. You know, I was just like, they don't know who I am. But I was just, <laughs> right. I was just like, oh, so it really was hit home for me too. So thank you for your time. We appreciate you and your voice. Yeah. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Um, and uh, thank you for watching. You know, also, if I could just give a quick shout out again to Ava DuVernay and Array for all that you are and all that they're doing for, you know, Black stories and films. Um, you know, so thank you all. Thank you. Cool. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.